We're back for season two of Instrumental. I'm super excited to be back in podcasting this summer. I know it's been a bit of a break since season one, and I'm going to bring you more music research and practical ways to apply music in a way that helps you in real life. Just in case you're brand new to the podcast, my name is Bria and I am your host. I'm a music therapist who has this love for research that makes people's lives better. Today, we're talking about music that brings up autobiographical memories, memories that we have about our own lives. I'm going to say right off the bat, there's a lot of interesting research about this topic, and we don't have time to get to all of it, but today we are going to start with some of the basics, including explaining something called the music reminiscence bump and looking at what areas of the brain help construct our personal autobiographical memories for music. Keep listening to find out more. Sometimes people describe music as a time machine. Have you ever been flipping through the radio and you come across a song that you have not heard in a really long time? And even though it's been years since you've heard the song, you can remember all the words. Maybe you're immediately transported to another place, another time in your past when you experience that music. It doesn't even have to be a song you particularly like, but all these memories and feelings can get stirred up. So to start off this episode, we are going to start with a mini experiment. You are about to hear clips of three songs, and for each one, take note of what memories, feelings, and associations automatically come to mind. Gangnam Style Gangnam Style Op, 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 op Opan Gangnam Style Gangnam Style Op, 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 op Opan Gangnam Style Hey, sexy lady Op, 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 op Opan Gangnam Style Hey, sexy lady Op, 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 op Alright, what did you think? 
In order, those songs were Wannabe by the Spice Girls that came out in 1996. The second song was Complicated by Avril Lavigne that debuted in 2002. And the last song was Gangnam Style by Psy that was a huge hit in 2012. If you're a millennial like me, each of those songs were really popular at different points of me growing up. When I hear each of those songs, all these details about my life come to mind. I can remember what grade I was in, who I was friends with, where I lived, and all these different details get pulled to the front of my memory, even though I haven't thought about those stages of my life recently. Like the Spice Girl song, for instance. When I hear that song, I remember getting that Spice Girl CD for Christmas. I was in fourth grade. And I also remember that I got my very first stereo for my room. And this was a big deal. I was super excited because it was the first time I could listen to music in my room by myself. I could make mixtapes onto cassettes. It was, it was an exciting time to be a fourth grader. Um, I felt so cool getting that stereo. But what about you? What memories came to mind when you heard those songs? For me, all three of those songs are really evocative, but maybe you only had personal memories and feelings with one or two of the songs. Let's dig a little deeper into why or why not those songs became intertwined with personal memories for each of us. Now, memory might seem like a pretty straightforward term, it's just all the stuff you remember, right? But memory as a psychological term can refer to a lot of different types of memory. There's procedural memory, that's the type of memory that's kind of hard to articulate, but it encompasses skills that you have and just know how to do. Procedural memory is how you know how to ride a bicycle or a skateboard. Then there are memories that you can recall consciously, like semantic memories of general knowledge, like what 2 plus 2 is, or what the capital of California is. But the type of memory that we're focusing on in this episode is called episodic memory. Episodic memories are also consciously recalled, but they're things that we've actually experienced personally. Episodic memories are autobiographical and personal to us and include details about when and where and what events happened, who was there, why things turned out the way they turned out, how they unfolded, as well as the feelings that we experienced when the event occurred originally. And FYI, in this episode, I'll be using the terms episodic memory and autobiographical memory interchangeably. When strung all together, these memories make up the stories of our lives. But not all of the millions of memories we form over our lifetimes carry the same weight. We do not remember every stage of our lives equally. Some memories have more staying power than others. In memory research, there's something called the reminiscence bump. This reminiscence bump refers to the trend that we disproportionately remember more events of our lives that happened between the ages of 10 and 30. When you survey older adults to think back and recall memories, memories from these two decades of their adolescence and 20s seem to come up the most and be the strongest. Picture a graph where the bottom horizontal axis is time with maybe one tick per year of life, and the vertical axis is the amount of memories you remember. When older adults are asked to recall memories, the amount of memories they report is not a flat straight line where an equal number of memories is remembered from all periods of life. Instead, older adults report the highest number of memories between the ages of 10 and 30, which visually looks like a bump on this graph. 
There have been dozens of studies looking at the reminiscence bump, and it's generally consistent across gender, education, and cultures. Why is it that we remember this period of life best? Some researchers think that our late adolescence and early adulthood features experiences that we do for the first time, and these often involve really vivid, emotional, and important life milestones. Milestones like driving for the first time, or our first romantic relationships, our first jobs, leaving home and becoming autonomous adults. These types of memories may be encoded more strongly than other parts of life, that later when we're middle-aged, our lives might be more routine or predictable. Or it could be that when older adults are asked to remember something, they remember prototypical life events because they just stand out more. Or maybe it is that older adults romanticize their adolescence or early adulthood years that lead them to recall memories from this time more often. Most studies that look at the reminiscence bump use things like words or pictures to cue memories, but there's evidence to suggest that music may be an especially strong way to cue personal memories, maybe like you experienced at the beginning of this episode. The memories that we remember in response to hearing music are called Music Evoked Autobiographical Memories, or MEAMs, even though that's still a mouthful for being a shortened acronym, but we're going to go with it. MEAMs often bring up nostalgia or other strong emotions because they're often tied to meaningful times in our lives. And when recalling personal memories for music, the reminiscence bump trend holds up. Our memories for music that were popular during our youth are more accurate and bring up more of these MEAMs and stronger emotions than music from later stages in life. The music we listen to when we're teenagers and 20-somethings tend to have the greatest impact on our lives. But that is not the whole story. There's evidence to suggest that we are not the only ones to choose what music gets incorporated into our musical reminiscence bumps. There could be other forces at work. Carol Kremhansel and Justin Zapnick conducted one of the first studies to suggest that we may have multiple music reminiscence bumps. Their study was done in 2012 and recruited 62 undergraduate students, most of whom had grown up in the United States. The average age of the participants was 20 years, so most of the participants were born around 1992. The researchers also asked the participants about their parents' ages, so the average mom of a participant in the study was born in 1961, and the average dad was born in 1958. In the experiment, the college students listened to 11 music mashup clips presented in a randomized order, and each of these mashup clips were actually made up of even smaller clips of music that came from the top two Billboard chart hits for every year between 1995 and 2009. So in mashup clip A, participants heard smaller recognizable snippets of the top two hits from 1955, 1956, 57, 58, and 1959. And these mashup clips covered five-year increments from 1955 all the way up to the last clip that covered the top two hits for 2005 to 2009. After listening to each mashup clip, participants reported on a 10-point Likert scale what percentage of the songs in the mashup they recognized, how much they liked the songs that they had just heard, their emotional responses to the music, and whether they had any personal memories associated with the songs in that mashup clip. 
In the results, Krem, Hansel, and Zupnik plotted the participants' average responses about their recognition, liking, and personal memories for all the music clips that spanned five and a half decades in total. As you might expect, the 20-year-old participants reported the lowest recognition, liking, and personal memories for the oldest music that they heard from 1955 to 1960. And the participants had the most recognition, liking, and personal memories for music that was released in the 2000s when they had been teenagers. And these increased ratings in the participants' memory, recognition, and preference for this newer music is probably the start of these participants' musical reminiscence bumps that will continue to hold up across their entire lifetimes. But Kremhansel and Zepnik's results found two other smaller increases in personal memories, recognition, and liking for music in the 1960s and the early 1980s when the participants' parents and grandparents were about 20 years old. The researchers called these cascading reminiscence bumps, where the college students' musical preferences and memories mimicked those of their parents' and maybe even grandparents' reminiscence bumps. Even though the college students hadn't been alive in the 1960s or 80s when that music was originally released, they still showed a greater liking and more personal associations for that music from older generations, maybe because they were exposed to the music from those eras when they were growing up. It just goes to show that the music that's important to us is not just shaped by our own personal preferences, but there are generational forces that can influence us. For me, that makes a lot of sense. I'd say I have a preference for music that my parents listen to. I think for at least my family, a lot of this music transmission happened on family road trips where we would take turns being the DJ. So on that note, let's take a little break, a little musical break compliments of my dad's favorite music to play in the car on summer vacations. No matter, darling, where you are, I think of you. Night and day, why is it so? All right, so we know a little bit more about how our musical reminiscence bumps are built and constructed, but it doesn't explain the actual experience of a music evoked autobiographical memory. When we're in that cafe and a song comes on and all of a sudden we're transported to a different place or time or, you know, music brings up different feelings that we associate with that song. Even if those memories were originally formed years ago, what's going on? How is our brain associating the music and our memories together as one perceptual experience? Peter Janata did an experiment that used neuroimaging to try and understand what brain areas are activated for memories that are triggered by music. In his experiment, Janata invited 13 undergraduate students with an average age of 20 years who went on to listen to music in an fMRI scanner. And really quickly, fMRI stands for Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging, which doesn't directly measure brain activity, but instead it measures the changes in how your brain is metabolizing or using up energy over time. 
For example, if you're using a certain part of your brain for a task like remembering what you had for breakfast, the neurons in that part of your brain responsible for that memory are going to be firing and using up energy. This energy needs to be replaced by more oxygen-rich blood flowing to that region. So fMRIs detect this change in blood flow to different parts of the brain, which is a proxy measure for brain activation. As a neuroimaging tool, fMRI is really powerful in neuroscience because it is non-invasive, it can give really detailed pictures of the brain, and it can measure changes in this neural metabolism over time. Okay, so back to Janata's experiment. Participants were slid into the fMRI scanner and heard 30 clips of randomly selected music that was popular from when the participants were between the ages of 7 and 19. After listening to each clip, participants reported three things. First, the emotional valence of the song, or how pleasant or unpleasant they found the music to be on its own. Second, how familiar the music was, or whether they had heard it before. And third, how autobiographically salient the song was, or how strongly they associated the song with a personal memory. Then, immediately after hearing all the clips and finishing the brain scanning part of the experiment, participants went into a separate room and completed an in-depth survey for each of the music clips that they had earlier indicated had evoked an autobiographical memory. They got to hear a clip of that music again and then answered questions on a computer about the content, vividness, and emotional associations of whatever memories the music brought up. Okay, on to the results. First, let's go over the behavioral results from participants' experiences of the music's emotional valence, familiarity, and autobiographical salience. Emotionally, a majority of the participants found the music to be positively valenced, with 50% of all the musical clips rated as somewhat or very pleasant, and 25% of the clips were rated as emotionally neutral. Regarding music and memory, 56% of the musical stimuli on average were rated as familiar, and 42% of the musical clips were rated as somewhat or strongly autobiographical. Some interesting results were also found after the participants finished in the fMRI machine and reported more details about the music clips that they did have autobiographical memories for. Strongly autobiographical songs brought up significantly more vivid memories and stronger emotions than songs that were only weakly autobiographical. Songs that were only rated as somewhat autobiographical just did not hold the same emotional weight. Additionally, participants equally associated strong and weak musical memories with certain people or lifetime periods, but only weak autobiographical memories were more likely to be associated with certain places in the person's past. Cool. So when we hear music that brings up a personal memory, it's likely to bring up more vivid images and stronger feelings than more vague memories. Makes sense. How about the fMRI results? Does our perceived experience of music-evoked autobiographical memories line up with what's happening in our brains when we're experiencing them? Janata's results found that music and memories are together associated in a few parts of the prefrontal cortex, the part of our brains that sits right behind our foreheads. There's one part called the dorsal medial prefrontal cortex, and activation in this area increased when participants heard music that was highly familiar and had strong autobiographical associations. 
Generally, the dorsal medial prefrontal cortex is at work when we're evaluating information or feelings that are about ourselves. This activation may explain the deeply personal response that we have when hearing music. So when I hear Wannabe by the Spice Girls and remember my own excitement and memory about getting the CD and the stereo for Christmas, this is probably in due partly because of my medial prefrontal cortex. A similar increase in activation was also found in the lateral prefrontal cortex, which is an area that we generally use to orient ourselves towards what's going on around us in the external environment. So two seemingly opposite parts of our prefrontal cortex, the inner focused self-referential medial prefrontal cortex and the externally focused lateral prefrontal cortex are both activated when we hear music that's emotionally positive, familiar, and autobiographically important to us. What is going on here? In his discussion, Janata points out that our autobiographical memories are constructed from various sources of knowledge stored in different areas of our brain. So when a memory comes up when we're listening to music, our brains are retrieving lots of little parts of those memories that are built from multiple sources of information. The lateral parts of the prefrontal cortex are paying attention to the musical structures and the familiar melodies and rhythms that we're hearing and processing the semantic meaning of our episodic memories. The medial prefrontal cortex is responsible for the more personal emotional aspects of our autobiographical memories, and it's through this coupling of different brain regions that allows us to make these strong associations between music and our personal memories. of music to evoke past memories and the stories of our lives isn't just interesting, but it can have real-world implications. When I'm working with older adults as a music therapist, knowing about the reminiscence bump is really important in guiding what music I prepare for my sessions. Although every client is an individual with their own unique musical tastes, I generally use some simple math to figure out what music is most likely to resonate with my clients and pull them into meaningful discussions with me if we're doing life review. So here's the quick formula I use. First, I'll ask a client how old they are and then figure out what year they were born in and then just add 20 to that year. So if a new client I have, um, let's call her Charlotte. Charlotte is 79 years old in 2019, so she was born in 1940 and turned 20 in the year 1960. From that calculation, I know that music about 10 years on either side of 1960 is going to be the sweet spot in terms of the years that make up Charlotte's reminiscence bump, the music and memory she's most likely to remember. In practice, especially in earlier sessions before I get to know her music preferences more individually, I will start with music from the 1950s and 1960s. Charlotte's probably going to be familiar with and remember more about the music and memories formed in these two decades than from other points in her life. 
which I just want to point out is Elvis and Motown and Beatles. It's not necessarily big band music and Tin Pan Alley and stereotypical older adult music. The oldies that reach my older adult clients need to be constantly re-updated every few years. And even still, I'm constantly surprised that my clients know music that's often much older than they are. Sometimes I'll even get a request for a song that's over a hundred years old, and my suspicion is that this is the cascading reminiscence bump at work. It's always my responsibility to bring in music that fits my clients' preferences and goal areas, but it's also good to know that expanding to music older than the reminiscence bump for clients like Charlotte may still be meaningful because she encountered it as a child via her parents or grandparents, and that can still be really meaningful and relevant to our session if our goals involve life review. A music may be a memory cue that is especially powerful, that's able to help people recall memories that they wouldn't have been able to try and remember on their own. In the beginning of the episode, when I played the clips of pop music, certain memories that you haven't thought of in a while probably came to mind. I'm definitely going to have to do another episode looking into music and memory for older adults with dementia, but there's a growing body of evidence that suggests that for someone with dementia or another memory disorder, music may be one of the most efficient, meaningful ways for them to connect with their personal memories and all the meaning that comes along with them. But until we all have the privilege to be older adults with several decades of memories to wade through with music, how can we make the most of what we learned today? And I'll be honest, this question hits home for me a little bit because I turned 30 this year and as I was writing this episode, I realized that I am leaving my own predicted reminiscence bump. Um, So I guess in an alternative worst case scenario universe... Like, does this mean that I'm stuck only liking the music I've acquired a taste for at this point? Will my memories of the rest of my life start fading away because I'm not encoding them as efficiently? Of course not, or at least not necessarily. For me, just knowing about the reminiscence bump and that I'm likely to listen to less new music has helped keep me out of musical stagnation. And if you find yourself listening to the same artists over and over again, being aware that our music listening can become habitual after our 20s can renew our intentions and lead us to be more conscious about seeking out new music. And of course, a lot of streaming services like Pandora and Spotify um, make it easy and almost automatic in a way to introduce ourselves to new music so that it's even easier to discover a new artist that we might like. And no matter what stage of life you're in, music can always be a tool for reminiscing and processing personal events that happen to us. We've learned that music can become deeply bound to specific life experiences, and you might find it worthwhile to take this relationship between music and memory to the next level and document what pieces of music have come to represent the important events in your life. Um, For me, I've kind of been playing around with this idea for the last two and a half years. I've been in the habit of organizing my Spotify playlist by month. So when a new calendar month begins, I start a new Spotify playlist, and over the month, I keep adding music that I'm especially drawn to and tend to listen to a lot. 
I've personally found this practice to be really meaningful in helping me organize and reflect back on my thoughts and development throughout each year. And I feel like organizing my music in this way chronologically has helped to solidify certain memories of the past few years for me. I even had a friend quiz me by choosing a song at random from some of these playlists spanning the last few years, and I'm pretty proud to say I remembered the correct month and year of each song every time, or I was only off by a month or two. So I guess I could run a quasi-experiment on myself in a few decades to see if this accuracy holds up. Um, So stick around for season 25 of Instrumental. So at least I have one episode of that season planned, if we get that far. Anyways, um, even if you don't want to be as specific as me about cataloging your music by chronological time, you might also find it valuable just to like look back and see what music has come to define certain epochs of your life. What music do you associate with significant relationships in your past, with transitions like moving or taking on new roles or new responsibilities? Processing these times through music that you're drawn to and use to celebrate good things or to cope with challenges or develop as a person can be a really meaningful personal exercise and maybe something that you just want to keep a record of for the future or just for your own self-reflection. So, recapping everything. Music is a powerful cue for evoking memories that are personal and unique to us as individuals. Music-evoked autobiographical memories are often centered around our music reminiscence bumps or music that we encounter between the ages of 10 and 30. And our music reminiscence bumps aren't just built from music that was popular during our youth, but there are cascading musical reminiscence bumps that are influenced by our parents' musical preferences as well. And finally, we can explain some of that time-traveling effect where we hear music that is personally relevant, familiar, and positive because the music is being processed in the left medial prefrontal cortex of our brain that brings together and builds the autobiographical meaning and feelings that we associate with that music. Whew, that's a lot, Um, but I really do love this topic and we have not even scratched the surface of research in this area, so I'm definitely planning to do more around music and autobiographical memory in the future. But if you do have a specific question about music and memory that you'd like to hear in a future episode, uh, feel free to tweet me at at instrumentalpod or email me at instrumentalpodcast at gmail.com. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Super excited for the rest of season two to come out soon. Our intro music was composed by Daniel Goldschmidt and Justin Yuan serves as our neuroscience research consultant. Stay updated on the latest from Instrumental by following us on Twitter at at InstrumentalPod. More information about the research and resources mentioned in this episode can be found in the show notes at our website, instrumentalpodcast.com, and I'll see you again soon. Thank you.